We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. One of the answers I get time and again to my question, what makes your life meaningful, is family and in particular children. But how good is your relationship with your children? Before you answer this one, I want you to consider some other questions. Do they talk to you? Do they open up and tell you their problems? Or do you suspect they keep stuff back, perhaps for fear of disapproval, upsetting or worrying you? My witness today is Daisy Turnbull, who's a teacher and former director of a school wellbeing unit and an accredited counsellor for Lifeline, a 24-hour crisis support service in Australia. She's also the mother of two children and the author of two books, 50 Questions to Ask Your Teenagers, A Guide to Fostering Communication in Young Adults, and 50 Risks to Take with Your Children. She believes that parents' relationship with their teenager should be based on asking questions rather than making rules and issuing directions. And this is really interesting. The quality of your relationship during the teenage years is an important marker for how you'll interact with them as adults. The saddest call that you get, Daisy, on Lifeline is from parents who are estranged in some way from their adult children. And in your experience, the problems have their origin in the teenage years. Tell me more about this. Yeah, so this is just an observation. So I've been volunteering at Lifeline for just over three years now. You know, everyone has certain calls that can trigger them. And one of the ones for me is often mothers in their 60s, 70s, and they are on their own, either divorced or widowed, and they just are incredibly lonely and can't reach out to their children. They talk about having their children, loving their children, but feel that their kids are too busy for them. And, you know, obviously with the crisis support line, you can't say, just tell your kids you're, you know, calling Lifeline right now, but that's always what I want to do. You can't do that. And obviously every situation is different, but I do think that often when you're discussing these things with people on the phones, what you see is that these relationships were tense earlier than you think they were. And so it is really important to get the teenage years right for you and for your children as well. So what were you like as a teenager? I would say that I was very well behaved. I was incredibly oh dear. well behaved. I was not, I, I was, I, look, I was always a, a bit of a nerd. So I probably didn't push the boundaries as much as I could have, but also I'm a younger sibling. So I've got an older brother. And so I think that he maybe pushed the boundaries. And because my parents are both firm feminists, whenever I wanted to do something, the, you know, the standard had already been set by my brother and I never wanted to go beyond that. So I was lucky in that sense. I was also very lucky because my parents loved having conversations with me and my friends. And actually I had lunch today with my best friend from school and we were saying a few weeks ago when the book came out, we were talking about how, you know, my parents' kitchen dinner table was the one that we didn't rush off from. Like they would ask us about our day. We'd have conversations about things happening in the world. And I'm really grateful for that now. You write in the introduction of the book, you say your parents survived your teenage years. Is that, <laughs> was that a joke or do you think parents do survive the teenage years? 
I think for my parents it was a bit of a joke, but I do think, you know, for a lot of parents, the teenage years can be really hard. And I do see that in my experience teaching, but also with life and just in life. The thing with teenagers is they are designed to move away and individuate from their parents. That's the goal. And I make the joke in the book, but it's not really that much of a joke, that the reason they move to their friends rather than their parents is because children are meant to outlive their parents. And so it's it's almost evolutionary that you would move away from your parents and move closer to people your own age, people whose lives are going to be a similar length to yours. But one of the things that I think with parents is that, I'm sorry if you can hear my children in the background, they're just having one of those <laughs> joyful fights. Um, they One of the things with parents with teens is that when they try and stop that happening, that's where a lot of the tension can happen. And it's it's in that kind of trying to pull, uh, you know, be too firm and too strict that can be really hard for parents and their teens' relationship because that's where that tension builds. We're not going to talk much more about your parents, but they were both public figures with big jobs. During your teenage years, your father, Malcolm, was involved with Republican politics in Australia, and I believe your mother was Lord Mayor of Sydney. Now, I think a lot of parents worry about balancing demanding careers and being a parent. Looking back at your own teenage years and your own experience of that, what would you say to parents who worry about balancing home and work? So I would at this point just say the caveat that I'm such a firm believer in mothers working and being involved in their communities as much as they can be. And I think that one of the reasons for that is you do see that as kids grow up and they become less needy, they move out of home, you want to have a life and a purpose that exists beyond your kids. I would say potentially my parents had very big careers and not everyone has careers like them. I I recognise that. But what they always taught me in them having their careers was a few things, always the importance of hard work. And I've seen that and I've, you know, tried to practise that as much as possible in a very different career to theirs. But also this idea that parents show up for their kids when it's most important. That doesn't mean they have to be there for absolutely everything all the time. So it became quite clear from quite a young age that I was not going to be the greatest sportswoman known to man. And so my parents didn't come to the athletics or the swimming carnivals, but they did come when the school choir was performing. They went to my brother's debates, you know, when they could. They went to the things that they knew mattered to us. They didn't go to absolutely everything because not absolutely everything mattered to us. So that really is a question of understanding your children and not actually pushing them in the areas that you're particularly interested in. So if you're a sports person, it's very tempting to be pushing them in the sports direction, isn't it? Yeah, and also being there and, and being present for your kids in what they're interested in. And and as you say, it may not always be what you're interested in. I have my kids, as I, as I said, they're a bit younger, um, but I have friends that are great at Minecraft and I am not good at Minecraft. I know nothing about Minecraft. So I have friends that can play Minecraft and talk to my kids about Minecraft, which is the greatest gift to me because it means that they're getting that connection with someone over something they're passionate about. And I don't necessarily have to get a master's in Minecraft. So let's define teenager because you're aiming this book at parents of children 11 plus. So you don't have to wait to 13 to become a teenager. No. And I think the way I kind of positioned the teenage years was very much around the senior school years in Australia. So that's year seven. So that's around 11 or 12 and up to 18. So I'm not sure if it's the same way in the UK or not. 
Yeah, 11 is the time when you go into what we colloquially call big school. So, I mean, it is a big change. And of course, children are going into adolescence earlier. They're going through puberty earlier. So we really are talking maybe for some children even a bit younger than 11. It's a sort of an attitude, I think, this questioning attitude. And maybe some of these questions might even work with younger children too. They do. And, you know, with my first book, which was basically for kids aged up to 10, my editor and I had a conversation around whether or not we should include the risk of talking to kids about consent, for example. But we decided that that's something we could deal with in the teenage book because we thought talking about consent is almost too early, you know, at age 10. Looking at it now, and I'm not sure if you followed this at all, but in Australia there has been what has been called the consent crisis. So there was a petition around our secondary schools of teenage girls talking about times they had been sexually assaulted and them not knowing that things were sexual assault because they didn't understand the rules and all of the law and, and all of this. So actually a lot of these conversations can happen a lot earlier and need to. We know that most kids have seen, not most kids, I think it's 50% of kids have seen pornography by the age of eight. Wow. Yeah. So it's a lot of this stuff is happening earlier and it's the nature of the, the playground because as long as you've got a kid with an older sibling and that younger sibling knows terms or, or hears terms and may not know what they mean, they can parrot them in the playground and then you've got, you know, a year four kids saying that and then kindy kids are hearing it. So it needs to be discussed when it is needed for your family. I'm going to broaden this even further because actually I think the type of questionings we're going to be looking at is actually useful actually for everybody, uh, for your grown-up children, for your partner. I can't tell you how many clients I've got who talk to their partners as if they're five years old in my room. (laughs) So I think this is a really good approach for how you communicate with everybody. So I'm just going to add Mm. that in as well. And I think, you know, a great example there, Andrew, You think about the term boundaries. That is a term that five or 10 years ago was maybe only really ever discussed in a clinical context, but now everyone kind of is learning about boundaries and even kids are learning about boundaries. So what that means is parents are learning these terms and concepts at the same time as their kids, which is why I hope that the conversations are useful not just for the teenagers but for the parents to learn about it as well. So before we get into the questions, I think there's two main problems when it comes to parenting. The first one is stepping in too much. Why is that so tempting? Explain to me, Daisy. Well, it's very tempting to just do things because kids and teenagers do things really crappily. Like you ask them to pack the dishwasher and they do a dodgy job of it. So you just think, well, I'll do it. But the reason not to do that is that they don't learn how to do it. And we, at the moment, have this issue of grown adults talking about how much they hate adulting. And the the term of adulting is a meme now. The more you step in for your kid or your teenager, the less autonomy you give them. And it means that they won't grow up with that skill of being able to do things for themselves. So I do think that that's an issue. And especially in that younger age group as well, you know, the helicopter parent, and I see it even in a senior school context, parents ringing me up to say, oh, Susie didn't do her homework. It's my fault. So please don't give her a detention. And I was like, well, should I give you a detention? Would you like to come in and clean the classrooms at age 45? And so it's that context as well. I think that uh, that could be quite entertaining, really, couldn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, and my old boss, her daughter started at university, or her son started at university, 
And she, she's the headmistress at a school, and she got an email saying they're having a parent's drinks for the first year uni students. And she was like, the whole point of university is they do this on their own. Why am I being invited? And, you know, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in Australia, it starts really early because our daycare centres and our preschools use these apps that take photos every day and give you a report of what happened every single day at daycare, which of course I love as a parent. But as a teacher, I look at it and I go, uh, they're going to have some real withdrawal symptoms when they go to two school reports a year from, you know, a daily update. So there's all this stuff that has been pushing us to helicopter parenting and overdoing things for our kids. And what that has meant is that our kids don't know how to do stuff when they become adults. They're not as resilient. They don't have autonomy and they don't know how to do basic things. So what first problem is people step in too much? The opposite end of it is that they don't do anything at all. Tell me about that. Well, okay, so the first thing I would say is both my books are very much targeted more to the overparenter than the underparenter. And if we're talking about, you know, child neglect and that kind of thing, then that is a far bigger issue. But I do think there is an issue here that is separate to that, which is that a lot of parents just assume schools will do everything. So in those teenage years, they don't talk to their kids about, you know, sex or consent or pornography or even about ethics or even about what is a good friend. They avoid those conversations because they think that the schools are doing it for them. And my point to that is if you are not the one having these conversations with your kid or your teenager, then you are effectively losing control of the message. It means that you're maybe letting the internet do it or the school do it or, you know. Their best friend do it. Their best friend. And I I would say I thought I was a pretty good teenager, but God, I gave some bad advice as a teenager. (laughs) What was the worst advice you gave? (laughs) Well, so I am the, um, I would say I'm quite a confrontational person. So I was always like, yeah, you got to go and say this, you got to do that. And, and, and girl, teenage girls are just absolute echo chambers for each other. <laughs> That's what we do. So we don't offer perspective. We just reflect back everyone's point of view. So I think that parents do in some ways step in too much, but then on other things, they assume the conversation's already happened. So what made you decide to centre your book for teenagers around questions? Well, I thought it had to be around conversations. And I often think that we start conversations with teenagers very poorly because we assume that we know more than they do. And we go in with either a yes or no question, or even worse, we just go in and tell them what we think about it. And as a teacher, I have had the best conversations with teenagers when you just go, yeah, what do you think about that? Or what do you reckon about that? And and if anything, there's almost that lifeline training of not even asking them what they think about it, just saying, oh, you sound annoyed about that. And then they go, yeah, I am annoyed and blah, 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 blah. Or as you probably have to do a lot in your work, you just say, you know, tell me more about that. Yeah, I say that tell me more are the three most loving words in the English language. (laughs) Not I love you because actually, you know, it's very easy to say I love you, but tell me more about why you're upset with me. I mean, that's a very loving thing to do rather than trying to shut them up or tell them why they're wrong. Tell me more. It's the three most loving words in the English language and probably the three most useful words for dealing with teenagers as well, I would think. Exactly. And also that idea, and I talk about it in the book, but that idea of naive inquiries, actually go in, just say there's something happens in the news or, you know, there's something that's happened with some friends and you say, oh, you know, so if something happened, you know, 
what do you think about that? Go in with your zero knowledge of it because one of the most annoying things parents can do, and I know that I do this as a parent sometimes, is go, oh, yeah, but you just need to fix it, like do X, Y, Z. And there's that great video on YouTube of It's Not About the Nail. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it's, you know, this woman is sitting there with a nail in her head and he's going, you just need to get rid of the nail in your head. And she's like, it's not about the nail. I just need you to listen to me. And and sometimes that's all teenagers need. We'll find the details of that, put it in the show notes so that you can see it. It sounds really good. And that's a problem I think everybody has when somebody's upset the instinct is to fix it. And I think possibly as a parent, the instinct to fix it is very strong. And I think I'm hearing you say, don't fix it straight away. Why do you say that? Well, don't fix it straight away unless it's, you know, a serious problem. But if it's, you know, them having an issue with a friend or they need to decide between which party they're going to go to on the weekend, don't suggest it to them until they've had some time to work through it. Because We learn from our experiences. And I would, and I know we don't want to date this too much, but I would especially say that teenagers in the last few years have had experiences taken away from them because of lockdowns. And teenagers learn through experience. So in some ways, as parents, we need to offer them experiences in double time to make up for that. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. I hate playing devil's advocate, but I'm going to do it. I know people are going to say, but teenagers don't want to be interrogated. And that's not the kind of questions these are. And these are not designed to be, where did you leave your sports socks or why don't you ever put your sports socks away? And I would say that one of the things I say in the book is don't use why. Why is a very judgmental word. Because as soon as you say to someone, why did you do that? The reason for them doing it is not obvious and clear to you, which means that you're questioning their judgment in having done it. And these conversations are not designed to be interrogations. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is where you have these conversations is actually quite important and when. So things that we always talk about in the car is great because you're both facing the same directions. You're not staring at each other, you know, And generally, you can't escape easily as well when it gets a bit difficult. But you can have a bit of silence because you can sort of look out at the road. And so you can sort of have a a natural break. Oh, hang on a second. I just need to concentrate while I'm finding my way through this traffic system. So you can't escape, but you're not actually imprisoned together, really. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny, a girlfriend of mine always says that in relationships, long car drives are like gloves off because it's kind of, it's it's often when people end up having these big big, big chats that become arguments. But I think with teens, one of the other benefits of a card ride is that they are generally time limited. So it's on the way to school or on the way to sport or on the way to, you know, Aunt Beryl's, whatever it is. It's generally not going to be five hours talking about one topic. So having a time limit and often having these chats around a job is useful as well. So it could be folding laundry or packing the dishwasher or something. I've heard it called side-by-side parenting. Yeah, I really like that. That's lovely. So give us some suggestions of the type of questions you're suggesting. So one of the ones I really like is, who are you online? And it's the question around talking to teens about them being who they really are, while also not exactly knowing who they really are online, which is tricky especially in this world of, you know, Instagram filters and this idea of, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. 
from that great New Yorker cartoon. <laughs> um, I think it's really important to teach teenagers and talk to teenagers about like, look, you put this joke up on Instagram and, you know, I just wonder, is that who you are? Would you say that to that person's face? You know, that old adage of don't put anything online you wouldn't want to see on the cover of the newspaper or your, your grandma reading about. But also I think this is an interesting context probably not with teenagers now but in a few years where parents already have their online profiles and kids are developing theirs. That idea from, um, oh, I've just forgotten which play it is, it's one of the great Greek players, uh, Oedipus Rex, who did Oedipus Rex? I can't remember, of, of that liminal space. So that whole play kind of takes place on the threshold of the palace and online is private but it's not. So having a conversation as a family How do we feel about photos of family members online? How do we feel about posting photos of the home online? How do we feel about posting live photos of us when we're away on holidays? Well, that's obviously could be a security risk because it means you're not home. You know, that kind of stuff is a really interesting conversation to have with teens around this, not in a didactic way, but maybe saying to them, look, you are such a kind and friendly person, but I notice online you're behaving slightly differently. Who do you want to be online? Like, do you want to have a totally different personality online? Sorry, I went way into one question there. No, <laughs> um, it sounds really brilliant because I have never actually thought of that question, who am I online? And I suppose now I stop and think about it. You know, I do have an online persona. I think we all do. And so do you share this stuff with your kids? You know, this is my online persona or is that sort of stepping in and trying to have a teaching moment and that's not what we want? So I have a public Instagram, it's um, miss mm-hmm. underscore DZT, and I have a close friends group on that. So my, my kids will only ever be in the close friends and sometimes I'll take a funny photo or a video of the kids and I'll say, can I put it on Instagram? And they'll say, you can only put it on close friends. And, and I very rarely put photos of the kids on my public Instagram anyway, unless it's on close friends. So I think, you know, I talk to them about that in relation to their privacy. My kids are a bit too young for their own social media accounts, but I do think they're important conversations to have. One suggestion that Kira Prendergast, who's a great online safety person, and if you ever want to have an Australian guest, she'd be wonderful. Mm-hmm. She talks about this idea of, say you have a teenager and they are really into crochet, for example. They really love crocheting. She would suggest, okay, we'll have your Susie Blogs account where it's photos of you and your friends. Create a separate account, which is just, you know, Susie Crochets. And then if you, for example, become a professional crocheter, then that is your effectively like your professional account. And then you can still have your personal account. And having kind of some delineations there could be a really good way to develop different hobbies and not necessarily combine them all so that when you are in your 30s and really embarrassed that you used to crochet, it's not there in your public profile. You can just shut down the crochet account, for example. So give us some advice on how to frame a question to a teenager. You've said, don't use why. Don't ask questions that you know the answers to, a bit like a barrister, sort of. I call it sometimes when people are talking to their partner, leading the witness as if they're a barrister. And you don't want yes, no questions. So how do we get these questions framed? Well, I think the first one is to think about when. So, you know, like I said, could be in a car or a timed element. 
Where is another one. I actually have them around things. But the other thing to consider when you are thinking about talking to teenagers about these topics, it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent. And I think that one of the things that, you know, the nuclear family has done is it's made us feel that because of declining birth rates, people don't have dozens of aunts and uncles, but there are benefits to other people asking these questions. So just say you wanted to talk to your teenager about who they are online, to use that past question. One strategy could be like, oh, hey, I noticed you posted that on Instagram, you know, like what do you reckon about that? Like how how well do you think that's going to age, et cetera? Or just saying, you know, who do you want to be online or talk about people online? Like you only need to look at Kim and Kanye to see some really bad role modelling. So you can take current examples or you can talk about their own behaviour. But maybe a more effective way to start that conversation is to have an aunt or an uncle or a family friend say, hey, Susie, I noticed you posted this photo and it's like, I don't know, I feel like it's a little bit blah, what do you think about that? And not necessarily have it as the parent. So I think that the who is important there. Right. When I was at school, I had a history teacher who always used to say, you have to go who, why, what, when, and what were the consequences? You've got to ask open, curious questions. So what, when, how? I'm not so against why. I mean, I think it's if it depends a little bit if you're putting your hands on the hips and saying why is very different from being genuinely curious you know tell me why did that upset you yeah you know i think it can be a lot of it's about the tone and the body language as well but you've got to have those open words how why what when and mm. as you say where as well yeah exactly and i think with these questions some of them are kind of trickier than others but some of them are really fun and interesting questions you can just have at the dinner table like what makes a good friend that is the kind of question that you can have especially around other siblings Mm. um some of these questions are probably a bit private so you probably want to have them one-on-one with your kid or or parents with a kid so i do think some of them can just be fun dinner table conversations and others should be treated a bit more sensitively don't walk into your teenager's room to talk about privacy without asking if you can go into their room. <laughs> Good point. So give us another and give us another fun question then. So questions around ethics is really interesting because so the question is what is the right thing to do? And I thought that was a really interesting question because the opportunities for those cases at the moment are everywhere. You know, like so in Australia during lockdown, I, I don't know if this was a British thing as well, we had this problem with toilet paper. So people yes. were like, did and you have that in, too? Yeah, well, I, I live in Germany. So we mm-hmm. had, they, they call them hamster buying in Germany, hamster kalfen. So it's so almost like you're stuffing, so you're stuffing the toilet paper into your cheeks, which is one way to use all the extra toilet paper you had saved up. Yeah. So so one of the things like I was talking to my kids about, I was like, so are you a good person if you don't buy heaps of toilet paper? Or are you only a good person if you give some toilet paper to other people who need it? Or are you only a good person that because you provide enough toilet paper so your family don't have to go around begging for toilet paper? Exactly. So what is good? And is it good to just have enough toilet paper for your family? Or do you actually have to look after your neighbours as well? You know, what is a good thing there? The ethics of lockdowns was one. But even things like the ethics of on the internet, like with face filters and that kind of thing, talking to kids about that. Teenagers love having these conversations. Teenagers especially 
And I think it's probably slightly less politicised in the UK and definitely in Germany because you have functioning climate change policies. But in Australia, our government is just pathetic when it comes to climate change. And so teenagers are really passionate about climate change and the fact that the government is not looking after them to the extent that some teenagers went to the High Court to say that the Minister for the Environment has a duty of care to Australian children and the government won that case, meaning they do not have a duty of care to future Australians, which is just an insane concept. So (laughs) (laughs) ethics is a really fun topic of conversation to have with kids and teenagers because they will have their own opinions. You know, a lot of these go into the topic of relationships as well. So things around like what is a good relationship or what is a healthy relationship is there, but also questions around, and one of the ones that I write a bit about and I mentioned at the beginning is what are your boundaries and why are boundaries important and how do we practice boundaries? And, again, it's really important for parents to know what boundaries are and practice them because if you have kids who push you and push you and push you. So you say, no, you can take the iPad when you clearly did not want them to take the iPad, which just happened before we started recording. They learn that they can push and push and push and boundaries will fall. And then they go into their relationships going, well, if I just push and push and push, then I'll get what I want. Please, everybody do this with your teenagers because then you'll save me a lot of grief in 20 years' time and I I will not be trying to deal with two people who are forever pushing each other's boundaries. And that would make my life so much easier and your children's life so much easier. In fact, the whole world much easier. If we could only all learn about boundaries. Yeah, exactly. And just going, you know, this is one of my boundaries. Like I'm not going to sit on red all day and then get a text at 10pm and think, okay, well, that's perfectly fine from a partner. Like you go, okay, well, that's actually, I don't like that way of being treated, so I'm not in that anymore. And just being really clear in your boundaries is an important one. With a teen, it could be boundaries around like, we do not swear in this house, we do not scream, we do not slam doors. And that is the rule. And that teaches your teens how to interact as they grow up. Now, I'm thinking it's not just important to ask questions. I think it's also as important to think about how you respond to the answers. So tell me about that. Yes, I think your example of the barrister is a good one. Obviously, we shouldn't be leading the witness, but we also shouldn't go in with no information whatsoever. So it is important, especially for some of these trickier questions, you know, the book provides information on the topic. So it means you can kind of go in and go, okay, so what do you think about, like what are your boundaries? have some knowledge so that if they want information about it, you have it. But also if they do have a totally different view of it, then know how you might navigate that. So one of the things that I see come up a lot is around values. So as teenagers grow up, you know, we don't have the same rules. Yes, of course, there's if you're living under my house, it's my rules, that kind of thing. But that will end. And if that's your only way of being able to effectively control your teen's behaviour, then that will fail eventually and then you will have nothing. So one of the things I talk about in the book is like go from rules to values. Like, okay, well, you know, we respect each other or we are curious or we are kind. You know, was that a kind thing to do? Is that how you would want to treat a friend? You know, those ideas rather than the rules of you must be home by 10pm, you eventually turn it into text me when you get home. So if I wake up late at night, I want to know that you got home safely. You know, make it 
those rules, from rules to values, because your teens will grow away from you. And I did a podcast a while ago with a Christian radio program, which was really interesting because obviously one of the things that we're seeing is increasing secularization. So you do have Christian parents with kids who do not follow in their faith. And that can be really hard for those parents. And so it's like, well, okay, if they're not going to follow in their faith, maybe you need to rework the wording of it so that the values are there, but not necessarily the religion part of it. Give us a really tough question. We've had the fun questions. Let's have a really tough question. So a really tough question because it's it's a massive issue in Australia and I'm sure it is in the UK and actually the book has just come out in the UK so I would strongly recommend you talk to her as well, is around coercive control and domestic violence. The biggest group of victims of coercive control in Australia are girls aged 16 to 25. Those relationships that teenage girls get into, especially generally with teenage boys, can define how they expect to be treated. So there is a clear pattern of behaviour with coercive control and in the book I go through all those stages and the first one is known as love bombing and I'm sure you've seen this many a time and it's really sad because if you're a teenage girl and you've ever watched Gossip Girl or, you know, any really romantic comedy, love bombing is the norm, like that really over-the-top affection and gifts and it's almost like it's discombobulating how much this person likes you. What it does is it kind of sets you up with this expectation of this amount of affection and gift receiving and attention. And so if they pull a little bit of it away later on, you want it to go back to how it was and you think it's your fault that it's not there now. And that can be really dangerous because that then becomes like the play that can then lead to things like isolation and watching movements and all of that stuff. I think also with one of the things with coercive control that's really important is watching movements, you know, like, and surveillance. Teens have in their phones the ability to always be sharing their location with their friends. So I have had students who have told me, my boyfriend's on his way because I can see him in Find My Friends and he can see me. And I go, ah, okay, is that cool? You both cool with that? Or sometimes I've seen students say that they share their location with their boyfriends, but their boyfriends don't share it with them. But that structure is there. Like that technology is there for them to do it. I do it. Like if I ever go on a first date, I share my location with a girlfriend and we joke about how crazy is it that this is what you've got to do these days. But that is, you know, that these are things that can lead to really unhealthy and really controlling relationships. And the majority of coercive control is not physical abuse. And that's the other conversation to have with teens and also to have it with, you know, teenage sons and daughters. But that idea of you can be psychologically or emotionally or financially abused and you need to learn about it now. What question would start that whole area of conversation? Just what do you know about control? And in Australia, It's very sad that there is a woman who is killed every week by her current or past domestic partner. So there is the conversation starter in the news every single week for you to have that conversation with your kids. And I would assume that the numbers are quite similar in the UK and in Germany. Let's look at this in the bigger picture. Roll on many years into the future. So our children have now grown up and you're feeling that your relationship with your adult children 
isn't as good as it could be, what sort of questions do you think you could ask and you could do to change that kind of dynamic? I've got a few ideas and I'd just be interested to see if you have yeah, any ideas. Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a really interesting question because I do think, obviously, I would hope that by having these conversations with your teens, they know that they can come to you because ultimately that's what you want. You want them to come to you. You want them to enjoy your company, but you want them to come to you when they need you as well. So the final question in the book is what questions do you want me to ask you? How do you want our relationship to be? And kind of think about it in that context. Talk to your teen about it. But also before it gets there, kind of things can help now for those 20 years from now. So things like having rituals as a family can then be that foundation to ongoing, you know, could be dinners or whatever it is, and continuing with that relationship. But what are your questions? My question would be, and I think actually this is a good one, you could ask your teenagers as well, what would you like me to have done differently? Yeah. And I think also, I think that's a really good one. And I think a very difficult question for parents to ask. Oh, I agree. I'm not saying it's easy, but if you've got into a dark place, the only way you're going to get out of a dark place is actually going into the dark place. Mm, And the other thing I would say is when they tell you what you've done differently, don't debate with them. Don't say, well, it was for this reason or no, I didn't or whatever. If they've had the courage to actually tell you this, you've Mm. got to answer here we go again, the three most loving words in the English language, tell me more, so that you really understand, you know, can you give me an example of that? That's another wonderful uh, question. And then, you know, you can actually have a story from their perspective. And, you know, then it's, you know, how did that feel for you? And you can, you know, you don't have to just listen. There does come a point where you can say, would you like to hear what it was like from my perspective? And the answer might be, no, I'm still too angry, in which case that's fine. (laughs) But if it isn't, then that's your opportunity. But I think there's sort of almost three questions to one response from you, I would sort of, if we have to have rules of thumb, I would say. I mean, what do you think? What do you think of that idea that you've got to ask more questions than you give responses to? I think that's absolutely right. And I also think if these issues are not coming out when your kids are in their 20s or early 30s, whatever, they sure as hell will when they have kids. (laughs) 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 Because your children, when they are parents themselves, will parent their children slightly differently to how you did it. It's quite shocking. And you might potentially have the self-awareness to go, I wonder if that's because they didn't like how I did that. Mm. And it could also be that your kids say to you, look, I don't want Susie Jr. to have X, Y, or Z because of these reasons. And it then becomes, again, almost about boundaries again around going, okay, well, that's how they're raising their kids and it's different to how we did it, but, you know, blah, 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 blah. The movie Encanto, the Disney movie, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's all about intergenerational trauma and it's this idea of, you know, my son said to me the other day, he said, I don't think Abuela is a bad person. She just didn't know how to love everyone the way they needed to be loved. And I was like, mm. yes, correct. Terrifyingly insightful for an eight-year-old. But it's true. It's like, I don't think it's that parents do it wrong. They just don't necessarily do it the way their kids needed to at the time. And that can come out much later than you think. This is my superpower 
or my suggestion of how you can have a superpower, and that is to apologize. If you say to your children, I'm sorry, you know, I did that wrong, please forgive me, you not only open up the conversation in that area and stop it from being a forbidden topic, but it really does pay dividends. Time and again, when I suggest this superpower to my clients to try and change their relationship with their children, the children are so pleased that they have first spoken about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's it's really important. But then at the same time, what I hope is that with, you know, books like this and, and, you know, what you do and and listening to podcasts like this is that we can start dealing with these problems early or kind of preventing these problems earlier by having those conversations. You could certainly apologise to a teenager sometimes. You know, I overstepped the mark there. I suddenly Mm. realised, you know, my lecturing voice came on and I didn't really want to have that. So, you know, let's go back and tell me more about what you were saying. And one of the other things, and I do say this in the book, talk to your teens about stress. Like, I just had quite a stressful half hour before we started doing this. And I said to Jack, look, I'm really stressed right now. I'm just trying to do something. Could you leave me alone for 20 minutes? And he was like, oh, okay, cool. I get that. A lot of parents think that that's not okay. It's not burdening the child with your stresses. It's not saying you need to sit and listen to my work dramas for an hour. It's saying, you know what, I'm having a bad day, so we're going to have cheese on toast for dinner. (laughs) And actually recognising, because how are we meant to raise our kids with that understanding that sometimes you have a bad day and that's okay, and actually rest is really important, if they never see us do that? The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the new things on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting everybody to write in if you've got a question and chances are I will have just the right person to deal with it. And that is the case today, I'm pleased to say. So if you'd like to participate in the programme, give us a dilemma, there's something that's troubling you and you'd like a second opinion of myself and one of my witnesses, well, all you have to do is go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. Thank you to this correspondent. My wife and I have many disagreements about how to bring up the children. Not the bad things like schooling, but the day-to-day ones. I sometimes think that's worse because there are more opportunities to fall out. I think table manners and politeness are important. Elbows off the table, please and thank you, can I leave the table? We don't often eat as a family and I want it to be a special occasion, but my wife is more take me as you find me. She's happy for them to interrupt our conversations or stop something she's doing to fix them a sandwich. When they are old enough, and as my mother would say, ugly enough to make their own or some other request or perhaps demand to find their gym kit or some other school equipment. I try to intervene, but she gets huffy, but at the same time, she is exhausted most of the time and complains of being stressed out and not appreciated. How do we get on the same page? Yeah, this is a really an interesting one, especially in the context of a couple together. I think that it's something, you, like you say, when you need to get to a dark place, you've got to go in it. You know, you can't go over it, can't go under it, got to get through it. But I think this is one where it's almost like I think the mother is working 
on that kind of short-term just surviving, getting through the day, making the sun to do this, not necessarily thinking about that idea of where do we want them to be in five or ten years' time. You know, that great line of Jonathan Haidt, the role of a parent is to work yourself out of a job. But at the other end, we've got the father that is actually only thinking about five years' time. And, you know, are these children going to be a credit to me? So it sounds to me like what could work there is actually talking about together as a couple and almost doing an assessment of the mental load in a way. So go, okay, what actually needs to happen in the house? And how much are the kids doing themselves? And how much do we think they should be doing in a few years' time? And then stuff around, you know, the table manners or how they dress or whatever it is, that really goes down to a values-based conversation. So it could be this is something that's important to me, so we're going to do this, and then mum might have things that are important to her and deciding as a couple what you're going to focus on and maybe you focus on a different thing each week. These are conversations when you're together, you can have these conversations and they are tricky to get through. But I think also being honest with the kids about the things that matter to both of you and to each of you and then deciding as a family what you're going to focus on. Oh, I like that idea. You know, let's actually think about what are our values in this household Mm. and, you know, if you are genuinely curious and this is what do they call it, blue sky thinking, and you know any answer is acceptable. But I think what often happens is we come with our list of rules that of what mm. is important to us, and we're going to try and get as many of them on the constitution of the family as possible. Yeah. Whereas somehow, and I'm not quite certain how, you've got to sort of put that all to one side and come with a genuinely curious mind. You know, what are the values of this family? What is important to us? What are the boundaries around the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera? How do you do that? Because it seems really difficult to sort of leave your opinions at the door, so to speak. Well, I think it's going in knowing what is the most important to you. So I do think you go in with a bit of a negotiating starting point, but also deciding what do you want for your kids? Because this is not just about what's important to mum or what's important to dad. It's about what is important for the kids and saying, you know, for being able to sit at a restaurant or, you know, at the dinner table and have a polite dinner is a skill that you think they should have at some point. So when should that be taught? And to be able to have these sort of kind of conversations like you had with your parents where you are having these conversations about, you know, what do we think the solution is to the war in Ukraine? You know, that you have those sort of kind of conversations and you can't have them if you're all jumping up and down from the dinner table all the time, can you? Exactly, exactly. And I do think if it might be in this case, maybe the dad needs to say, this is something that's really important to me. And I want to take the lead on it and I will manage this. You know, like you can't just say, I want the kids to do this, but I'm not going to be there to enact it. So I do think, you know, often this stuff takes work. And in 50 Risks, a lot of it is around this idea of like, yeah, when kids are 10, they should be making their own lunches. Why are you making your 10-year-old's lunch? But what are the points to get you there? And talking as a couple, you know, okay, well, what do we want them to look like in a few years' time? What do we want our family to be like in a few years' time? And I love your idea that we can actually involve the children in this conversation. You know, what do you feel is important around the dinner table? Let's hear their opinions as well. What do we think as a family? Or is that too risky? 
because they're going to no, say. No, I think I think we'll give them a say. It doesn't mean they get the right of veto, but give them a say for sure. A book I read talked about how when a grown up came for dinner, the kids had to ask them three questions. Mm-hmm. They could be any three questions. That idea of developing curiosity. And I would like, hate to get for lunch there. Can you imagine what they might ask you? Yeah. And the other one is if, uh, my daughter's best friend's family does this beautiful thing where they, you know, much like a gratitude activity, but they talk about the rose and the thorn of their day. And they can have multiple roses or multiple thorns. They can have as many as they want, but they've got to think about what was good and what was bad in their day. And if you're talking about younger kids, or like just build that ritual, start it so you start the conversation around things. And Doing that with my kids because they're now at the same school, I get so much intel on what's happening at school because they're like, oh, yeah, and that kid in the playground is I'm like, oh, fascinating. That's a lovely ritual, the rose and the thorn. Thank you very much. So I hope that is useful. And thank you, Daisy, for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. I have to turn the tables on you and ask you what makes your life meaningful. My children and my relationships. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in, you know, other people matter and being a good mum and having great chats with my kids is really important. But also, you know, I've got a great relationship with my parents, but also friends and I've kind of found friends in really weird ways and I'm very grateful for that. What weird ways have you found friends? So one of my closest friends is a woman called Linda and her partner Kay. They started off living next door to my grandmother in a share house And now they live with my grandmother, kind of as her unofficial carers. And they are now such close friends of mine and the kids that Alice, my daughter, one day we were walking down the street and someone said, oh, how do you know Linda? And she said, oh, we're distant cousins. Like it's just (laughs) built this mythology around the friendship. Um, And they're just really wonderful people. And I've got friends that I've kept since high school, friends that I've made online that have, you know, then become in real life friends. I'm very lucky for those relationships. So this is not where the conversation ends. Actually, I think I'm going to ask Daisy about the risks that you should take with your children. If you want to hear that and the three things she knows deep down to be true, then you need to become a supporter of the podcast. There are three ways of doing that. You can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. There you'll find about how to become a supporter through Patreon and you get access to all of the bonus material that we record. If you're on Apple, you can subscribe directly through Apple. And you can also now, hurrah, 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 fanfare and trumpets. You can also do the same through Spotify as well, if you're a Spotify person. So all of those ways of hearing what we're going to be talking about, the importance of taking risks with your children and finding out those three things that deep down Daisy knows to be true. I do hope you can join us for that. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.